the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this holy Monday. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Dave King Engineering this afternoon. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with Mark Moyar. He's the author of Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968, the book published by Encounter. That's coming up in our second hour of today's program. We'll also talk about attacks against churches. Uh, The number has nearly tripled. We'll get into that later in the program as well. First, some of the day's news. Well, on Palm Sunday weekend, heading into Holy Week, a Christian film about Abraham sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22, outpunched Creed 3 and Shazam, Fury of the Gods at the box office, coming in a respectable third behind Dungeons and Dragons and John Wick Chapter 4. His only son raked in $5.5 million in its opening weekend, securing some 2,000 screens, Despite a comparatively small marketing budget, which Angel Studios raised through crowdfunding, Jordan Harmon, president of Angel Studios, told the Daily Signal on Wednesday that the film has secured more screens for Easter weekend than it had secured for its opening weekend. It's an incredible Easter film that tries uh, ties in Christ and his atonement. Such a beautiful movie. Well, Harmon and the film's creators sat down uh, to discuss the Bible film and its success, while Hollywood producers often act as gatekeepers, Harmon explained that Angel Studios decided to turn those keys over to the audience, trusting in the wisdom of crowds, specifically one crowd, the group of investors they refer to as the Angel Guild. Everyone who invested in Angel Studios projects such as The Chosen, Tuttle Twins, David, and now His Only Son, has a say in the projects Angel Studios decides to produce, market, and distribute. Well, the guild consists of nearly 100,000 people, and those people become guild members. They get access to uh, prototypes and short films. Uh, They call those torches, the president explained. Well, um, Helling came to Angel Studios with the movie The Angel Guild, voted to invest in it. Specifically, the studios paid uh, to market the film, raising $1.235 million in less than 100 hours in a crowdfunding effort. Angel Studios spent less than a million dollars before opening weekend. Well, the real crux of the story is you've got this beautiful film that the Angel Guild basically came in and said, We want his only son to exist. We want it to get out into the world. We love it. And this is a film that has been rejected by Hollywood. They stepped in. It was produced and they did a great job, especially in attracting an audience. Critics have rated the film fresh with a 78 percent rating, according to Rotten Tomatoes. While 96 percent of the audience liked it, audiences liked it so much, in fact, that they paid to give free tickets to more than 16,000 people, according to the Angel Studios president. Well, the Lord got hold of my heart, opened my eyes to the truth of his word and the truth of the gospel, he said. And from that moment on, I could see the people in history, in the biblical narrative as real people. And I wanted to show others. So I endeavored from the moment on this um, uh, on his uh, heart cry and as that my life's mission to illustrate and 
exposit the biblical narrative through film and to bring scripture truth from the pages to the screen. So the film did much better than uh, was anticipated. Well, in other news, uh, Louisville police mayor uh, and Kentucky governor, they spoke to the media after a gunman opened fire in the building that houses Old National Bank there. Authorities in Louisville, Kentucky, identified the suspect a deceased gunman accused of killing five people inside a building that houses an old national bank location um, as a former employee. Well, the shooting happened at 8.30 a.m. The bank doesn't open until 9. And officers that responded within minutes, three minutes to be exact, encountered the suspect who was still firing shots, according to the local police. The 23-year-old who live-streamed the deadly event was armed with a rifle and killed by poli- was killed by police. This shouldn't continue to happen, said um, one observer. Evil cannot take over our city. Well, the victims killed Monday were identified as Tommy Elliott, 63, Joshua Barrick, 40, Jim Tut, 64, and 45-year-old Juliana Farmer. All were bank employees. Elliott was a dear friend to Governor Abbott or Andy Bashir. Uh, he helped me build my law career, Bashir said, during a rather emotional afternoon press briefing. Helped me become governor, gave me advice on being a good dad. Well, the University of Louisville Hospital said that the they received nine patients following the shooting, three of which have since been discharged. The officer injured was identified as Nicholas Wilt. He underwent brain surgery after he was shot in the head. He graduated from the police academy just uh, a few days, on March the 31st, a few days before this incident. Well, the next few days are critical for his recovery. He is in critical but stable condition. President Biden said following the shooting that once again our nation is in mourning after a senseless act of gun violence. Attorney General Merrick Garland also uh, had been briefed about the shooting, the Justice Department said. Authorities described the shooting as a tragic event, but said it was the heroic response of officers that made sure that no more people were more seriously injured than what actually happened. The FBI's Louisville office tweeted that its special agents have responded to the scene of this morning's shooting in downtown Louisville and are assisting our law enforcement partners and again responded rather quickly. Old National Bank said in a tweet that in response to the tragic shooting this morning at our uh, location in downtown Louisville, members of the Old National Bank executive team, including CEO Jim Ryan, are en route to the location where they hope to meet and uh, comfort Employees, a witness inside the building where the shooting happened, said that the unidentified man with a long assault rifle began opening fire on the first floor. He just started firing, the witness reported. I didn't see his face. We were in the conference room. Whoever was next to me got shot. Their blood is on me. Well, it goes on from there. Again, the uh, the shooter was shot by police and they arrived within three minutes to put an end to what would have been a much worse situation, although there were fatalities. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break in just a moment, but we'll continue our walk through some of the day's headlines. And also coming up in the second hour, Mark Mayor. He is the author of um, Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 65 to 68. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. In addition to the shooting at a bank in Kentucky, there was a second shooting outside a community college in Louisville that left one dead and one wounded. Multiple suspects are believed to be on the loose in Louisville, Kentucky, after a shooting outside a community college 
again, left one dead and another wounded to earlier in the day. The shooting happened at 11.30 a.m. at the corner of South 8th Street and West Chestnut Streets outside the Jefferson Community and Technical College at the campus, according to local police. The incident was unrelated to the shooting that occurred hours earlier at the old National Bank location in the city. Five people were killed there, including the gunman, and eight others were injured in that incident. The victim killed in the shooting outside the school building uh, was identified as a male. No details about the wounded victim were immediately available. The suspects were initially on foot before running to a car and driving off following the shooting. The homicide unit is investigating and working to get video from the school to help identify the suspect. The the college announced that all campuses would be closed out of uh, reverence for those involved in the two separate shootings. In a significant decision made last Friday, the Texas federal judge issued a 76-page ruling suspending the Food and Drug Administration's approval of Mifeprestone, an abortion-inducing drug that's been on the market for more than two decades. The ruling essentially stops the prescription, distribution, and sale of the pills nationwide. Then, within hours of the Texas decision, a Washington state federal judge in a separate case issued a potentially conflicting 31-page ruling, which blocks the FDA from altering the status quo and writes as it relates to the availability of the drug. The ruling specifically prevents the FDA from reducing any access to the bill in the more than dozen states that initiated the lawsuit. The judge rejected a nationwide injunction and said the ruling applies to the plaintiffs that include Washington, Oregon, Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Rhode Island, Vermont, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maine, Maryland, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania. Mifepristone, formerly known as RU486, blocks a necessary hormone for the pregnancy to advance and cuts off blood and nutrients to the unborn child, slowly starving it to death over one or two days. The drug is taken with um, another drug, misoprostol, which induces labor and causes severe cramping, contractions and bleeding to expel the child from the womb. And while the two decisions seem at odds and certainly cast doubt about the drug's future, the Texas ruling may carry the most weight for its focused on FDA approval rather than just availability and restrictions and suspended the drug's approval to be on the market in the first place. Well, the ruling didn't go into immediate effect, allowing time for the federal government to appeal the decision. The Department of Justice did indeed swiftly appeal that ruling to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, increasing the likelihood that the U.S. Supreme Court will ultimately decide the pill's fate. In the Texas case, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus FDA, U.S. District Court Judge Matthew uh, Kazmark, or something very like that, sided with pro-life medical groups who asserted the initial FDA approval of the pill was improperly conducted and that FDA regulatory decisions allowing them to be prescribed via telemedicine sent by mail and dispensed at retail pharmacies were unlawful. Well, the judge wrote, the court does not second-guess FDA's decision-making lightly. But here, FDA acquiescence on its legitimate safety concerns in violation of its statutory duty based on plainly unsound reasoning and studies that did not support its conclusions. There's also evidence indicating FDA faced significant political pressure to forego its proposed safety precautions 
to better advance the political objectives of increased access to chemical abortion, which was the whole idea of Mifepristone. He also stated bluntly that the casting aside of these safety restrictions resulted in many deaths and life-threatening adverse reactions to the pill. And whether the agency bowed to political pressure or not, he countered arguments that it was inappropriate to allow a challenge to a medicine that's been approved for decades and noted the FDA deliberately blocked challenges to the drug's safety and efficacy. Why did it take two decades for judicial review of the federal court or in federal court? After all, plaintiffs' petitions challenge the 2000 approval date back, well, to the year 2002. Simply put, FDA stonewalled judicial review until now, the judge wrote. Chemical abortions currently account for more than half of all abortions in the U.S. That's according to the pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute. Mifepristone, which the FDA approved for use in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy, recently became the most common method of abortion over a procedural option in the U.S. due to being a method of circumventing state laws banning procedural abortions in the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade last year. We'll continue to follow this story as... Uh, The competing decisions for federal judges will ultimately uh, and very likely be settled by the U.S. Supreme Court. As I mentioned, the Department of Justice asked a federal appeals court on Monday to order that the abortion pill remain on the market pending further litigation days after the judge suspended the FDA's approval of the drug. The Department of Justice wants the short term administrative stay issued by the judge to be extended, and it also asked for a long term stay pending appeal. The drug, which is part of a regimen that is most common method of procuring an abortion, is due to become unavailable in most of the country seven days after the ruling. Also on Friday, a judge in Washington state issued the competing decision I mentioned earlier. The Biden administration is challenging the Texas judge's ruling on both the standing as well as the merits. In other news, the Israeli military launched rare airstrikes into Lebanon early Friday morning, just hours after it struck opposition targets in the Gaza Strip. Both series of attacks were in retaliation after Palestinian militants in Gaza fired rockets into southern Israel. Later, another volley of rockets were fired from Lebanon into northern Israel. The current round of violence began Wednesday during an incident at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem's Old City, where hundreds of worshippers gathered. Israel's police said agitators used rocks and fireworks, causing a disturbance at the site. They also barricaded themselves in the structure, police said. The Israeli officers raided the mosque and arrested more than 350 people. Some Palestinians disputed the events and said the police raid caused the current violence. The fighting comes amid a backdrop of religious sensitivity for both Muslims and Jewish people, as celebrations for the Passover holiday and Ramadan Holy Month are underway. The exchange of blows also comes as a similar escalation in 2021 spilled over into an 11-day war between Israel and Hamas, a terrorist group that governs Gaza. The most recent airstrikes came after militants in Lebanon fired some 34 rockets into Israel, forcing air sirens across Israel's northern frontier as people sought safety in bomb shelters. The attacks wounded at least two people and threatens the possibility of A war front, or I should say more than one front, Lebanon and also Gaza. The Biden administration is being criticized after new Title IX rules, including include gender identity. The administration is rolling out new rules to expand the meaning of sexual discrimination to include gender identity that would prevent schools and colleges from banning transgender athletes. 
Under the department's proposed rule, no school or college that receives federal funding would be allowed to impose a one-size-fits-all policy that categorically bans transgender students from playing on sports teams consistent with their gender identity, which, of course, does not correspond with their biological sex. Such policies would be considered a violation of Title IX. A Democrat lawmaker in Tennessee who survived a vote to expel her from the state legislature on Thursday attributed her survival to the color of her skin. The motion to expel Representative Gloria Johnson, who is white, fell just one vote short after the motion to expel her Democrat colleague, Representative Justin Jones, who is black and Filipino, reached the necessary threshold to remove him. Another Democrat, Representative Justin Pearson, who is also black, was expelled in a third vote. Two-thirds of Americans say that President Biden doesn't deserve to be reelected, according to a new national poll. Only 32 percent of those questioned in a CNN survey released on Thursday said the president deserves a second term in the White House, down from 37 percent in the cable news network's December poll. Sixty seven percent said Biden doesn't deserve to be reelected, up from 62 percent late last year. President Biden, whose approval ratings with all Americans in the CNN poll remain in negative territory, has repeatedly said that he intends to seek a second term in the White House, but he has yet to make any formal announcement. After all, once you announce, you're a candidate, not just the president. The Wall Street Journal published a report Wednesday detailing the inhumane conditions prisoners face in Lefortovo, the infamous Russian prison, where Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gersh... Let me get this right. Gershkovich is being hailed. Gershkovich um, became the first overseas reporter charged with espionage since the Cold War. According to the journal, the rooms in the prison are designed to prevent prisoners from seeing one another or engage in any social interaction. He is totally isolated. Transgender activist critics of J.K. Rowling uh, are not taking well the report that the Harry Potter creator is in talks with HBO Max to help the streaming platform develop a series based on her wizarding world. Social media users lashed out at the news this week, frustrated that the author, who many have called transphobic for her defense of the reality of biological sex, and her claims that trans activists are attacking the dignity of womanhood, is making more Harry Potter content. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll continue our walk through some of the day's headlines. And in our second hour, a conversation with Mark Moyar, who is the author of Triumph Regained, The Vietnam War, 1965-68. to You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, two former U.S. ambassadors are sounding the alarm on the increasing number of green energy projects nationwide being developed with the involvement of Chinese companies. Former U.S. ambassadors Peter Hoekstra and Joseph Sella said Chinese companies, which are subject to strict Chinese laws, have made a concerted effort to take advantage of U.S. green energy goals. The companies, they said, are exploiting America's tax incentives to build facilities and projects in the U.S., bolstering Chinese industry and ensuring continued U.S. reliance on technology from China. It'd be very ironic if we move toward electric vehicles to the numbers that the Biden administration is talking about, and the key component comes from China. Hoekstra, who served as U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands from 2018 to 2021 in an interview. That is a terrible, terrible place to be, he went on to say. U.S. resettlement agencies involved in aiding approximately 72,000 Afghan evacuees brought to the U.S. in 2021 and 22 experienced racism, sexism and verbal abuse 
from some of those evacuated, according to a State Department Inspector General report. The review by the IG looked into resettlements of tens of thousands of evacuees who were granted humanitarian parole to enter the U.S. after the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. The Inspector General's office found that the nine groups faced a slew of issues and challenges with such an undertaking. Resettlement agency officials said that the Afghan placement and assistance program involved some of the most significant challenges that they'd ever faced. The agency's nonprofits that are also involved in the supporting regular refugee resettlement identified a host of issues, including the fast pace of arrivals compared to the 11,840 refugees they resettled in fiscal year 2020. Additional issues included the COVID-19 pandemic and complications related to housing, staffing and cultural orientation. Again, 72,000. Lawmakers in Washington state have passed a bill that would prohibit the sale, the manufacture and import of assault weapons in the state. Both chambers of the Washington state legislature have now approved an historic ban on a sale of assault weapons in Washington state. The attorney general Bob Ferguson said in a press release Saturday, shortly after Democrats in the state Senate successfully pushed through House Bill 1240. The assault weapon ban passed the Senate by a vote of 27-21, and now uh, they head back uh, to the, it will rather head back to the House since it was amended in the Senate. The bill will then go to the desk of the Washington Democratic Governor, Jay Inslee, who is expected to sign the legislation. Twitter removed the state-affiliated media label it placed on National Public Radio's account and replaced it with a label that reads government-funded media. NPR was initially slapped with a state-affiliated media designation on Tuesday before Twitter faced public pressure to pull the label. Other media outlets with the label include Russian state-owned TASS, Russian state-controlled RT, and China's official state news agency, Xinhua. The biological man who underwent so-called gender-affirming care 40 years ago said that the surgery nearly destroyed his life and slammed the profit-driven nature of surrounding uh, transgenderism in the American medical and political landscape. When you hit the regret button, you can't put the pieces back, Walt Hare, an American author, activist, and speaker says. According to Hare, three main driving factors exist for people to identify as transgender. The first is a social contagion, a factor that is more likely to affect preteens and teens. They do it because their friends do it. Sometimes the school or schools are doing the indoctrination. So I tell parents, take your kids out of school, out of the school. The second is Internet exposure to media apps such as TikTok, where teens and young adults engage with sexually charged gaming experiences, anime, and a plethora of transgender-oriented groups. He compared the transgenderism to the rise of the goth trend in the mid-2000s. But while goth was uh, simply cosmetic and non-invasive, He said transgenderism is both harmful and very destructive. The third factor driving people toward transgenderism, Hayer said, is the impact of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, a term which the Centers for Disease Control describes as a potentially traumatic event that occurs between the ages of zero and 17. Special homeschool group enrollment soars as parents escape one-size-fits-all public schools. And the Iranian regime's recent drone attack on an American base in Syria that resulted in the murder of a U.S. contractor hasn't deterred the Biden administration from pursuing the controversial nuclear pact with Tehran that would dramatically enrich the coffers of the Islamic Republic. The White House remains wedded to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the formal name of the Iran nuclear deal, 
that would allow Tehran to access up to $275 billion in financial benefits during its first year, in effect, and $1 trillion by 2030. Veteran Iran experts have argued that the plan is no longer tenable because it's riddled with serious defects about deterring Iran's malign behavior, including failing to stop Tehran's ongoing drone attacks against Americans. Iran's regime was caught enriching uranium to 84 percent purity in February, just 6 percent short of weapons-grade uranium for a nuclear weapon. Former University of Kentucky swimmer Riley Gaines was assaulted by a violent trans protester during a speech to which she was invited. Riley Gaines, former University of Kentucky swimmer, vowed that she would not be deterred after a violent protest at her San Francisco State University speech this week. Gaines rose to fame for objecting to Leah Thomas, a University of Pennsylvania swimmer and a biological male who identifies as a transgender female, competing against her in high-level swim competitions. She was invited to speak at the San Francisco chapter of Turning Point USA on Thursday night about her fight against biological male athletes competing in women's sports. The 12-time All-American swimmer remarks, swimmers remarks rather, were drowned out by a group of pro-transgender protesters who had become increasingly louder outside the room. The protesters eventually made their way into the room where Gaines was speaking. She plans to press charges against the protesters who assaulted her. A Texas federal judge ruled Friday evening to suspend the FDA's abortion um, uh, the approval, rather, of the abortion drug Mifepristone, one of two drugs used together to cause an abortion, virtually banning the sale of the pills across the country. As mentioned earlier, a uh, competing decision has asked to do just the opposite, and the Supreme Court will very likely resolve the issue. The Internal Revenue Service plans to hire nearly 30,000 new employees and deploy new technology over the next two years. As it ramps up an $80 billion investment plan to improve tax enforcement and customer service, (laughs) customer service, it said on Thursday, the tax agency and its long awaited strategic operating plan said it will obligate about $8.64 billion of the new funding during the 23 and 24 fiscal years. And that 8,782 of the new hires during those years will be enforcement staff. A Treasury official said its goal is to help close the tax gap between taxes owed and those already paid by focusing new audits on the wealthiest Americans. Of course, that will only take a portion of their time, and then they'll focus on the rest of us. Representative Adrian Smith of the Ways and Means Committee accuses the administration of targeting small business owners and hardworking Americans. New IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel, he attempted to downplay Republicans' worries, saying that the percentage of criminal investigation staff would not change from its current proportion of about 3% of the IRS workforce. Of course, the overall number, the size of the workforce, will increase dramatically. That 3% will represent a much higher number. The House Oversight Committee has subpoenaed multiple banks for the financial records of Biden's associates. The House Oversight Committee has reportedly issued subpoenas to several banks to get the financial records of some of the the president's family's associates. The subpoenas come as part of the Republicans' investigations into the business dealings of President Biden's family and associates. Federal prosecutors are investigating Hunter Biden, Biden rather, over his foreign business dealings in countries such as China and Ukraine, tax affairs and more. The committee, led by Chairman James Comer, subpoenaed Bank of America, Cathay Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, and HSBC USA NAA. The Oversight Committee's Democratic staff sent a memo to members on Thursday, which accuses Republicans of conducting their investigation behind a veil of secrecy. 
The Democratic memo, rather, alleges that Republicans haven't been publicizing their subpoenas or notifying Democrats, which has purportedly resulted in some targets of subpoenas being unaware that the committee is seeking their records. China's military conducted a second day of military drills around Taiwan on Sunday, with the island's defense ministry reporting multiple Air Force sorties and that it was monitoring China's missile forces. China, which claims dramatically governed, uh, democratically governed uh, Taiwan as its own territory, began three days of military exercises around the island on Saturday, the day after Taiwan president returned from a brief visit to the United States. Sending U.S. troops to Taiwan is on the table, says the chairman of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs of the U.S., Michael McCall. President Biden's not yet official bid for reelection will uh, lean on hundreds of social media influencers who will tout Biden's record and soon may have their own briefing room at the White House. TikTok White House, something doesn't quite add up. Well, the move aids to boost Biden's standing among young voters who are crucial to the Democrats' success in elections and to potentially counter former President Trump's massive social media following if he's the GOP nominee in 2024. And there's a big question there. For Biden, digital staffers are focused on influencers and independent content creators. Um, The staffers officially work for the White House, not Biden's campaign, but reaching young and suburban voters is clearly a priority. Perhaps a bit of crossover. Well, these influencers across platforms such as TikTok, Instagram and Twitter will praise Biden's accomplishments and agenda to their followers. Campaign? Presidential? Hmm. TikTok? In the White House? A lot of questions. Well, the administration is planning some of the most stringent auto pollution limits in the world designed to ensure that all electric cars make up as much as 67 percent of new passenger vehicles sold in the country by 2032. That's according to people familiar with the matter. Now, that would represent a quantum leap for the United States, where just 5.8 percent of vehicles sold last year were all electric and would exceed President Biden's earlier ambitions to have all electric cars account for half of those sold in the country by 2030. It would be the federal government's most aggressive climate regulation and would propel the United States to the front of the global effort to slash the greenhouse gases generated by cars. Now, remember that most of those elements for the batteries come from China. Where does that leave us? Big question mark. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. Also coming up in the second hour, right at the top of the hour, Mark Moyar. He is the author of Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Mark Moyar, the author of Triumph Regained. We'll also take a look at attacks against churches. The numbers have nearly tripled. All of that coming up in the second hour of today's program. Venture and growth investors and private companies continue to scale back their investment pace in the first quarter of this year. Global funding in the first quarter reached $76 billion, marking a 53% decline year over year from $162 billion in the first quarter of last year. That's even included, uh, including rather a report of $10 billion investment into open AI, largely from Microsoft and a $6.5 billion round for payments uh, giant Stripe. Without those two uh, large deals, quarter one venture funding would have been down even more dramatically, close to $60 billion. Every funding stage last quarter was down 44 to 54 percent year over year, a clear signal that the slowdown is not confined to late stage funding. 
President Biden blames his predecessor, that's former President Trump, for the botched Afghanistan retreat. Taking a page out of the Obama playbook, Joe Biden and team are blaming the negative results of his uh, poor leadership decisions on his predecessor. It's all Donald Trump's fault is almost verbatim the excuse the National Security Council spokesman John Kirby gave upon releasing the administration's report on the disastrous Afghanistan surrender and retreat. Decisions made and the lack of planning done by the previous administration significantly limited the options available for the withdrawal, Kirby lamented. He further complained that the Trump administration didn't leave Biden any plans for the withdrawal, as if Biden was somehow unable to come up with his own withdrawal plan or even change course. Besides, Biden had no problem ditching any and all of uh, Trump's other policies and plans. Meanwhile, the White House reported gaslights, uh, a report rather, gaslights the American public as it praises Biden for his deliberate, intensive, rigorous and inclusive decision making process in withdrawing from Afghanistan. So on the uh, one hand, the disastrous retreat was bad because of Trump. But on the other hand, it showed Biden's impressive leadership prowess. It's no secret that. Of all the justices on the Supreme Court, the one leftist loathe the most is Clarence Thomas, a black man who's a stalwart for upholding the originalist view of the Constitution. Ergo, it comes as little surprise that the media outlet ProPublica sought to create the aura of potential ethical violations as part of Thomas uh, due to his decades-long friendship with billionaire real estate tycoon Harlan Crow. In an article published last Thursday, ProPublica notes that over the years, Thomas has enjoyed vacations with Crow, including trips on his private yacht and jet. At issue is the fact that this past March, the Judicial Conference created new rules requiring judges, including Supreme Court justices, to report gifts and trips paid for by third parties. Uh, Thomas did not disclose his past vacations and trips because they were in the past and it wasn't required. But that didn't stop the uh, publication from calling for Thomas to be held accountable. Last week, actor Leonardo DiCaprio testified before a jury in Washington, D.C. regarding a J-Ho Lo, a Malaysian financier who's uh, funneled upwards of $30 million to the Barack Obama 2012 election campaign. On trial is hip-hop artist Prak Azrael. Uh, Praz Michael, who is charged with uh, helping a foreign entity influence Obama's campaign. It's illegal for foreigners to donate to U.S. campaigns, that is, as it is obviously intended for influencing a candidate's agenda. Lowe would um, pay Hollywood celebrities to party with him and donate millions to their foundations, such as DiCaprio's. In building these relationships, Lowe would use them to funnel millions into the coffers of Democrat campaigns. When individuals or organizations are falsely vilified, it is as predictable as rain falling from the storm clouds that they'll suffer negative consequences. Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer, attacks against Christian churches have increased exponentially. In just the first three months of 2023, churches have been attacked 69 times. Over that same span of time last year, there were 24 attacks on churches, which translates into a 288% spike. We'll talk more about that later in the second hour of today's program. In some good energy news, uh, Vakli Unit 3 became the first new nuclear power reactor to go online in 30 years. With the completion of the construction of the uh, Unit 4 later this year, the two new nuclear reactors will provide electricity to 500,000, let me get that right, 500,000 homes in Georgia. These new reactors represent the first implementation of new nuclear technology with reactors that don't hold the threat of meltdowns. Nuclear plants currently produce just over 18% of the nation's electricity. These new reactors present one of the few 
few carbon neutral energy options that can actually practically address the nation's growing energy demands. If the future is electric, the only way to get there will be to go nuclear. At least four were killed. Several were injured in a downtown Louisville shooting. The suspected shooter is dead. Dual court rulings have thrown confusion into the abortion drug debate. And Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and leading Democrats are calling on the White House to ignore the abortion pill injunction. California Governor Newsom is traveling to banned red states with a new pack as presidential rumors swirl. Now, these are states that he banned Californians from doing business with. But apparently doing business for political reason, that's okay. The Walter Reed National Military Medical Center has terminated its Catholic pastoral care contract during Holy Week. And a biological male golfer who won, rather, the women's tournament in Australia. French President Macron rejected the American rhythm on Taiwan, nodding to China's unity after meeting with Xi this weekend. China simulated a Taiwan strike in a second day of joint sword drills, demonstrating or illustrating precisely how they would go about it. It was quite chilling. On this day in history, 1790, President George Washington signs the first United States Patent Act. 1866, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals is incorporated. On this day in history, 1912, the British liner RMS Titanic sets sail from Southampton, England, on its ill-fated maiden voyage. The Golda Meir, uh, 17, I should say 1974, In 1974, Golda Meir tells party leaders she is resigning as prime minister of Israel. 1981, imprisoned IRA hunger striker Bobby Sands is declared the winner of a by-election to the British Parliament. And on this day in history, 1998, the Northern Ireland peace talks conclude as negotiators reach a landmark settlement to end 30 years of bitter rivalries and bloody attacks. Well, at first glance, the March jobs report seems something of a snoozer. After all, the actual numbers of jobs added by employers, 236,000, nearly hit the expected number, 239, on the, the nose. The fact that this is the first time in 12 months that the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers didn't meet expectations is, let's face it, a techno, uh, a technicality. In addition, the news that the unemployment rate edged still lower to 3.5% seems welcome, as does the labor force participation rate, having increased to its highest level since before the communist Chinese unleashed COVID-19 on the world and thereby crushed the global economy. But some of the underlying numbers are not technicalities. First, this Good Friday report marked the slowest pace of job growth in two years. U.S. hiring slowed in March as the once uh, rock-solid labor market began to soften in uh, in the face of high interest rates and stubborn inflation. For comparison, let's consider the trend so far this year. January jobs numbers was uh, 504,000 and February's 311,000. We've been wondering when the twin scourges of uh, Biden uh, inflation and Biden economics would begin to impose their will on the U.S. economy, and this might be the start of just that. A separate report released Wednesday showed there were about 9.9 million job openings in February, the first time since May of 21 that the number of available jobs dipped below 10 million. However, job openings remain historically high. Before the COVID-19 pandemic started in 2020, the highest on record was 7.6 million. There are still roughly 1.7 jobs per unemployed American. 
There's also been a wave of notable layoffs over the past few months, and the list grows longer by the day. Amazon, Apple, Meta, Lyft, Facebook, Google, IBM, and Twitter are among the companies letting workers go. Big tech companies are losing their jobs. Well, you hate to see it. Here's another ominous indicator. New applications for unemployment benefits hit 228,000 last week which was much higher than recently reported numbers. And another layoff, uh, another I should say, layoffs among U.S.-based employers have increased nearly 400% when compared to the first quarter of last year to the first quarter of this year. The president, seemingly um, mostly pleased with the report, called it a good jobs report for hardworking Americans. Still, he couldn't resist taking a bizarre swipe at Donald Trump and the 74 million Americans who voted for him. Extreme MAGA Republicans, the president said, in Congress, are threatening to wreak havoc on our economy with debt limit brinksmanship. Their extreme agenda would send an unprecedented investment uh, we've made here in America, along with the jobs that come with it overseas. And it's all to pay for even more giveaways to the wealthiest Americans and largest corporations. The president went on to say, make no mistake, I will stop those efforts to put our economy at risk and take us back to the failed policies of the past, end quote. Let's see. Extreme agenda, unprecedented investment, wealthiest Americans and failed policies of the past. That's chat GPT thing is getting better and better. Well, on the bright side, job growth in the government sector continued to be robust with another 47,000 taxpayer funded jobs added in March. That's second only to the hiring in restaurants and bars, which grew up payrolls by 50,300. That makes sense, though. Happy hour typically starts at four and someone's got to be there to wait on all those public sector employees. Hey, we've got uh, news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. And when we return, a conversation with Mike Moyar, author of Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 68. We'll also take a look at a new report on the number of attacks against churches across the country. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. It is the second in a trilogy on that war. He has recently written an article uh, that answered the question why America should pursue a strategy most likely to end the war in Ukraine at an acceptable cost. Uh, the new piece in the American Spectator draws on the history of the Vietnam War and shows how the fog of war can impact strategic decision making. He joins us today to talk about that new book and where we stand in the war with Ukraine or where I should say on Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you very much for having me. You know, it's so interesting, the connection that you make with the war strategizing that took place in the Vietnam War and uh, the decisions that are being made now and the impressions given by our leaderships with regard to the war in Ukraine with Russia. Uh, talk a little bit about the connection that you see in terms of leadership and how we can be misguided uh, unintentionally, perhaps, uh, and how we can learn something from Vietnam. Yeah, so those are excellent questions, and I'll preface this by saying and we have to be very careful about drawing parallels because usually situations have some resemblance, but, but oftentimes they also have a lot of differences. But case of Ukraine, I think is different in that uh, it's less clear, actually, how this is important to U.S. national interests. And Vietnam, one of the things I've found 
which ran against the conventional wisdom is actually there was a strong strategic rationale, but President Johnson didn't do a good job of explaining it to the American people because he was focused on his domestic agenda. Now, President Biden, I think he too has not really done a great job of explaining this war. If you asked Americans, you know, why are we sending so much money there? I think a lot of them would scratch their heads. Now, there's a, a case you can make, uh, although I think it's in general a tougher sell because uh, Russia is no longer a superpower. In Vietnam, we were dealing with Soviets and Chinese, both superpowers. And uh, so there's more, I think it's more of a humanitarian and moral argument in Ukraine, which has some merits, but but I think it's harder to convince the American people it's worth our, our blood and treasure. I think one of the interesting aspects of these two conflicts, one that we were directly involved in, the other that we're helping to supply in order to avoid becoming directly involved in, were errors made in leadership, errors in judgment that are, in Vietnam at least, only now um, coming to light. Uh, you wrote Triumph Reimagined as part of a trilogy to perhaps help us better understand what happened there, as well as what could have happened there had uh, decisions been made uh, in favor of victory. Uh, Explain to us why it's important to look back and to consider where uh, errors were made and how the information that was uh, those decisions were made on was flawed um, that led to um, a decision that ultimately meant we we lost that conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are certain... I think eternal truths in war, and so we study history to, uh, above all, to understand those. And in the case of Vietnam, you know, one of the enduring truths, uh, and this was first really articulated well by the German military theorist Karl von Clausewitz, is that the uh, the concept of the fog of war—that essentially there is so much going on that you don't know, or you think you know, but you get it wrong. And people, some people have thought, well, with modern technology, we know much more. We, uh, but Vietnam, there's a lot of advanced technology, and yet, 50 years later, we now are seeing that much of what people thought about the war at the time was wrong. And you had then, as you do now, you had a bunch of pundits and journalists who were professing to know all sorts of things, and uh, it turns out a great deal of that is wrong. And of course, part of it is that your enemy wants you to. Uh, misperceive things so that you you commit errors. So that's one of the biggest, uh, I think, lessons that we should be paying attention to as as we are listening to people telling us how well uh, the Ukrainians are maybe fighting. You ask a, a series of important questions in your article that appeared uh, in the uh, American Spectator. And you suggest that these are questions that should be seriously considered as we move forward. And people across the political spectrum are skeptical about the massive aid that we're giving to Ukraine, not suggesting we don't support the effort, but questioning whether or not there is a U.S. interest worthy of that kind of investment. You ask, with the population more than three times the size of Ukraine's, can Russia ultimately prevail through bloody attrition? How much aid will other countries contribute to the combatants in the next year? What plausible conditions will uh, convince both sides to agree to peace? These are important questions. Are our leaders answering them uh, for the American people? And perhaps more importantly, do they have good answers to those questions that will guide them in the political and military decisions they'll be making moving forward, presumably in an effort to avoid a conflict where the United States is directly involved? 
Yes, well, there's, uh, of course, a lot we don't know um, about what's going on internally within the, the White House, although the team that President Biden assembled doesn't have a lot of great military thinkers in it, which is also what President Johnson had. He hired Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, who was a, an automobile executive who really didn't know that much about the military. Uh, it does seem that people were hoping that the uh, Russia would have given up by now because of the losses they're taking. And I'm not sure they really figured out how ultimately they're going to work things out. Uh, you know, the, the Russians, again, sometimes we tend to assume they think like we do, but Vladimir Putin clearly has shown he's not all that concerned about the number of casualties he takes, uh, and which is a, a bit of a foreign idea to us. But if you look in Russia's history, uh, in World War II, they uh, they didn't fight very well at the beginning, but eventually, through superior numbers, they just wore the Germans down. And it seems from what we're seeing from Putin is that he figures that uh, because he has a larger population, that he is eventually going to uh, just overpower the Ukrainians. And so for that reason, I think it is in our interest to try to uh, find some encourage both sides to, to reach some peaceful resolution before it gets to a complete Ukrainian defeat. Well, again, returning to the book just released in January, Triumph Regained, uh, this is a, uh, the second in a trilogy. The first was released, uh, Triumph Forsaken, uh, re- released some time ago, the first volume of the three. You challenged the prevailing academic orthodoxy with regard to um, the prosecution of the Vietnam War. Why this series and what motivated you to revisit uh, the series with information that may not have been available some years back? I first got interested in this topic because I started meeting Vietnam veterans and they did not uh, conform to the stereotypes I was seeing on television. They weren't disillusioned, bedraggled, uh, suicidal, homeless, etc., and so that got me thinking, you know, what else about Vietnam have we has been misrepresented to us? And I spent, you know, spent now 30 some years doing this and have become more convinced than ever that most of the conventional narrative, which was basically produced by the anti-war movement, uh, is fundamentally flawed. And so this book, I pick up where the left leaves off as U.S. troops come in in 1965 and find, again, there's just a huge number of myths out there that have been propagated. And uh, perhaps the most rewarding part of all of this is I get to hear from a lot of veterans who, you know, write writing to me and say, I'm glad somebody finally got the, the truth out about this because so much has been misrepresented. We're talking this afternoon with Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Mark Moyer. He is the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. Why did America go to war in Vietnam, and what did our nation hope to achieve in this conflict? 
Yeah, thanks, Georgine. The, the fundamental reason was to contain communism, and you know, that part of the story in itself is well known. But what was controversial is whether or not we actually needed to go into Vietnam to do that. And there's been a lot of people who've dismissed the idea that that the future of Asia was at stake. And they point to the fact that after the war in 1975, most of the other countries don't follow the communism. And they use that to say, well, this shows there was no threat. And my counter argument to that is, well, 1975 is 10 years after we go in. And so you can't just assume that what happened then would happen in 1965. And so I go to show how, in fact, in 1965, there was a huge threat of communist expansion. And it's actually American involvement in Vietnam that will save most of Asia from communism. So you would argue that South Vietnam was, in fact, a vital interest to the United States at that time? It was, yes. And then as U.S. intervention causes changes, it saves uh, at least to the overthrow of communism in Indonesia. It causes the Chinese to turn against the North Vietnamese and the Soviets. Uh, as those things happen, then yes, South Vietnam is no longer as important to American interests. I do think it still was harmful to let them fall, and it led also to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, which killed two million people. But uh, in terms of the broader objective, we are able to save most of East Asia, which has great ramifications today because that is now the number one battleground for our competition with China, and we've been able to hang on to all of these countries thanks to Vietnam. What was the status of the war when American ground troops first entered the fight in 1965? At that point, the North Vietnamese seemed to be on the verge of victory, and they had launched a large invasion of the South in early 1965, which has also been poorly understood. But uh, so Americans are, are rushed in to try to save the day, and there's a couple of decisive battles that take place starting in August of 1965 with Operation Starlight. And in each case, the Americans prevail, and this will then force the North Vietnamese to back off and shift to a war of attrition. One of the things I thought was um, most interesting in the book, and many of us believe this before you wrote it or before new information was made available, Um, But you write that the consensus view of the Vietnam War tends to depict the United States military intervention as a hopeless folly and immoral war of choice that was doomed to failure and ultimately weakened our nation and undermined American interests around the world. Um, You argue, and I think rightly, that this view is wrong. Explain why that's wrong. And again, I think that might be surprising to some of our listeners who uh, followed this at the time uh, in the... uh, midst of the war protests and under uh, the the leadership that seemed to be vacillating. Mm -hmm. Yes, the part of the one argument you will hear about why the U.S. went in was that it was uh, that the U.S. Lyndon Johnson were trying to uh, kind of show off and just wield American power to uh, intimidate others. But we now know clearly from what's going on that, that Lyndon Johnson really did not want to fight in Vietnam, and he's forced into it by this North Vietnamese offensive in 1965. And we've also been told that the South Vietnamese government was corrupt and inept, and they were just hopeless. 
and that it was simply foolish as well as immoral to support them against the noble Ho Chi Minh uh, of North Vietnam, who was really more of a nationalist than a communist. And that whole line is also, uh, I debunk that in uh, both Triumph Forsaken and Triumph Regained, uh, that communists were actually real communists who imposed Marxist-Leninist ideology, killed lots of people to do that. And our allies in the South were uh, certainly by no means as brutal. Now, was there some corruption? Yes. But I, l- I like to compare it to Korea, where at the same at the same time you have a South Korea, which has been maligned for being corrupt and autocratic. And if you look today, South Korea is one of the freest and most affluent countries in the world. And you need only look to North Korea to see what happens when you use a Marxist-Leninist system instead of a liberal democratic system. You argue, um, and we talked about it a moment ago, that the war was a strategic necessity, but that it could have ended victoriously had President Johnson um, heeded the advice of his generals. Instead, he listened to um, others who advised him to take a, a different course. And we sort of edged toward victory at one point, and then, the, then he pulled back. To, uh, again, I, I think this is important because it helps us to understand the pressures, I suppose, of uh, leadership, uh, Biden in this case, Johnson uh, then, in making decisions that have to appeal to the public, um, trying to find the right voices to listen to and moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about that strategic um, win that we avoided because of decisions that were made and voices that were heeded and others that were ignored? Yes, the uh, Lyndon Johnson from early on in 1965 is being told by his generals that the strategy that he and Secretary of Defense McNamara are looking to pursue, uh, which is basically just defend South Vietnam, is going to uh, lead to great difficulty in the future because basically you're allowing the North Vietnamese to keep uh, attacking you indefinitely as long as they want to. And so they proposed a number of measures outside South Vietnam, including cutting the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, the main logistical line, and uh, ramping up the bombing of North Vietnam. And McNamara repeatedly convinces Johnson that these things are not going to work and they're going to needlessly provoke uh, the opponent, our opponents in China and the Soviet Union. We now see from what we know from the North Vietnamese side, also some things that have come out from the Chinese and Soviets, that, that in fact, these measures would have worked and that uh, there was not this actual prospect of China and the Soviet Union coming in, and they really wanted no part of a war against the United States. So there there were indeed huge opportunities missed to pursue strategies that would have either, A, just caused the North Vietnamese to capitulate, or at minimum would have made the war uh, a much easier conflict for the U.S. military to handle. How did domestic politics and American public opinion impact the conduct of the war? Well, initially, the war is popular among most groups of the American population. Uh, the most interesting segment in this period is is the college campuses, because up mm-hmm. until the middle of 67, the college campuses are generally supportive of the war. And then you see this sudden shift in the middle of 1967, which I attribute to two things. One is the baby boomers are, are arriving on force, and then uh, 
The other is that they changed the draft rules to make it harder for college students to avoid military service. And so suddenly you see this great upsurge in campus protest, which claims to be sort of morally upright, but it's really motivated by uh, self-interest. Uh, but the rest of the country actually still is remains supportive through all the way through the end of 1968. And it, it's not the case, uh, as we've often been told, that the Tet Offensive in January 68 kind of turned the country against the war. Uh, the country is actually about as supportive in late 1968 as they are when the U.S. troops first arrived, which is especially remarkable given that Lyndon Johnson really didn't do a good job of explaining anything to the American people. Are we finding that um, under the current administration with the president, and you made mention of this earlier, the president is failing to really explain our involvement in Ukraine and to help the American people understand why so much of our treasure is being uh, given to that conflict. Do, do people understand? Is the president doing a good job or has he fallen short in explaining um, our involvement there? Yeah, I think he has fallen short, and in a number of reasons. Of course, in general, he's not been very communicative uh, with the media or anybody else. And uh, you know, he's at a period in his career where I think, uh, you know, it's safe to say, he doesn't have a, the energy you would want of a uh, you know, commander in chief. Uh, I think also, you know, it is, you know, a hard case to to make. Um, because you know, the United States, uh, you know, has other allies in Western Europe, and I think we, we presumably, you know, if the Russians were actually trying to attack one of the NATO countries, uh, we'd see a different response. But I think um, it's hard to c- explain why we would need, especially the U.S. itself, to get directly involved in Ukraine and. Uh, People, I think, rightly wondering why the Europeans can't handle most of this themselves. They've got plenty of money, uh, but many of them, you know, would rather not commit their own resources. But I do think it makes sense for for us to expect more out of the Europeans. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue our conversation again, talking with Mark Moyer. He's the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined: The Vietnam War, 1965 to 68 the second in a trilogy of books on the subject. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the second in a trilogy of books on the Vietnam War, this covering the period between 1965 and 1968. What were the consequences of America's defense of South Vietnam for the broader Cold War? Uh, did it have much impact on that um, on that uh, ongoing uh, cold conflict? Well, it's certainly of great benefit in Asia in terms of preventing the fall of other nations. It does, in the short term, have a negative impact in 1975 when America fails to stick up for its ally and it gives the Soviets and the Chinese reason to believe that America is weak and can be exploited. And they, they in the, during the Carter period, we see a lot of 
Russian advances. I think there's some parallel there, too, with what we saw after the fall of Afghanistan. I think America generally came across as very weak in, in how we let our allies go, which I think probably did something to encourage Vladimir Putin to go into uh, Ukraine. Do you believe the war was a worthy but improperly executed enterprise? Um, Should we have been there? Uh, And you've already made the point that we could have left as victors as opposed to a failed effort. Your thoughts about our role in Vietnam? Yes. One of the interesting things about the debates over Vietnam is almost no one, the people who say it was a big folly, none of them will claim, will argue that stopping communism in Asia was unimportant. And uh, it'd be very hard to argue that, in fact, because if you look at the world then, and certainly today, Asia is the area of most dynamic growth in terms of people and wealth and power. And so we, as a country, I think, had a great... uh, interest in shaping the course of events there. And we did ultimately, they said, prevent most of those countries from falling to communism. I think if you had seen Malaya, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, Japan, uh, following the route of North Korea or looking like Vietnam afterwards, uh, Asia would be a vastly different place. We'd have a lot fewer trading partners. We'd have to deal with a more aggressive China. And uh, so I think in terms of the the continued struggle for control of the world and economic power, it's been uh, hugely important that we've been able to keep most of these Asian countries uh, on our side. We're currently um, facing the possibility of a conflict with China that's allied itself with Russia, and we don't know to what extent and what that will ultimately uh, ultimately mean. Can you just speak uh, about our national security, whether or not Vietnam, and for that matter, our response in Ukraine and maybe even Afghanistan, has informed our would-be enemies, uh, future uh, opponents, uh, about the United States' resolve to defend itself, its willingness to win a conflict should one arise in um, in uh, the Asian area with uh, with Taiwan um, and so on. Yeah, well, I think one of the the biggest challenges and one of the things that the president has not done a good job of explaining is is the reality that China is our number one strategic rival now and to the degree we pour money into ukraine that is going to uh, reduce our ability to deal with china and the chinese seem to be catching on to this and i think they figure that by giving some more aid to uh, russia that they can uh, drain our resources even more i think they figure they don't need to provide the same level of support so it's a net a net positive for for them and uh you know we have you know another difficulty we have i think is biden has put america's credibility on the line in ukraine and if the united states wavers um or if say we get to the point where you might have to send american troops in to save ukraine which would be a very difficult decision uh that is going to send signals to china and i think certainly if they perceive 
the United States as being weak, that could be a trigger for them to invade Taiwan, which, you know, Taiwan, I think, is much more important to the U.S. than uh, Ukraine Mm is. Yeah, but just the the minerals and uh, the resources they have there, which, of course, China would like to exploit as well. I know your first volume um, on Vietnam history, Triumph Forsaken, created quite a stir in academia. Uh, Explain that um, that stir, if you will, and uh, this second in the series and then the forthcoming third in the series, if you believe that will also challenge some of the assumptions and conclusions that have been drawn about that period of U.S. history and war. My interpretation in Triumph Forsaken and in the new book, Triumph Regained, is uh, runs contrary to the left-wing orthodoxy that has come to dominate American perceptions. And you had many of the people who've written about Vietnam were people who were protesters during the 1960s, and so they have a especially strong vested interest in the conventional wisdom. So a lot of them were not at all happy to have somebody telling them that this was all wrong. And it certainly had negative consequences in terms of uh, a career in academia. And uh, and unfortunately, it's not just limited to Vietnam War, but I know a lot of uh, very smart people who have PhDs, but who were seen as being too conservative and who ended up not teaching it at all in academic world and having to go elsewhere. It's part of a you know, broader problem we have where essentially the college campus has become a one-party state that does not really have an interest in free and open debate despite all of the lip service they pay to the idea of diversity. Yeah, the most recent example of judge on uh... – on a law school campus that was uh, literally shouted down by a member of the faculty. Well, the, the book, um, the books, I should say, uh, the two in the series and the, the third that's coming really do help us to better understand what happened there and perhaps to think about the challenges that leadership has in, in making decisions about how to prosecute a war, the voices that they're choosing to listen to. Any advice based on our experience in Vietnam that you would give to President Biden uh, with regard to how he makes decisions about how we're going to support the 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 Ukrainians in this conflict and the potential for conflict of our own uh, in in the future with uh, with China or for that matter some other country. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly recommended that they solicit a, a broad range of views and listen closely to what the generals have to say. Uh, generals are not always infallible, but oftentimes they know things that the civilians don't quite understand. And if you have a president like Abraham Lincoln who really understood military affairs, that's one thing, but we don't have that. So you need uh, a president, A, and also some advisors who can help him comprehend all of this information and and not have a reflexive disdain of the military, which has often been a problem for the Democrats ever since uh, the Vietnam War. Well, I thank you so much for the book and for talking with us about it here today. I really appreciate your time and your uh, your effort. Well, thanks very much, Georgine, for having me on. It's great, great talking with you. Thank you. Again, Mark Moyer, the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, it was two weeks ago that there was a mass murder of six people at a church-run Christian school. It constituted 2023's deadliest act of violence against churches, which have increased nearly three times this year compared to last year, according to a new report from the Family Research Council. Well, the number of anti-church attacks in 2022 had already tripled over four years, a previous report found. In all, assailants attacked churches 69 times in the first three months of 2023, compared to 24 such acts during the same period last year. That's a 288% increase. The rising tempo of anti-Christian assaults that includes arson, bomb threats, vandalism, and sacrilege has affected places of worship in 29 states. The motives behind these desecrations run the gamut from pro-abortion activism to controversies over transgender ideology to apparently senseless acts of destruction. American churches are increasingly bearing the brunt of anger and aggression, whether that's from political or other motivations. The report's author, Ariel Del Turco, assistant director of the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council, told the Washington Stand This contributes to an environment of hostility toward Christianity. Now, the acts of anti-church aggression documented between January and March of this year include 53 incidents of vandalism, 10 suspicious fires, three gun-related incidents, three bomb threats, including a pipe bomb recovered outside Philadelphia's 127-year-old St. Dominican Catholic Church. If this rate continues, 2023 will have the highest number of incidents of the six years Family Research Council has tracked, according to the report. Well, the number of churches attacked in 2023 already exceeds the entirety of 2018, in which we identified only 50 incidents, or 2020, in which there were 54. The month of January of this year had more church attacks than any single month in the five years FRC has kept records, with 43 such events, according to the data provided. This steep increase is a cause for concerns. Hostility toward Christian views of hot-button political issues have exploded into violence and vandalism numerous times this year. And in fact, sometimes the, the point of view or the statements of others are attributed to a particular church building that may or may not have been involved in the controversy at all. In January, abortion activists spray-painted the words, women's bodies, women's choice, over a pro-life banner hanging outside St. Stephen Catholic Church in Riverview, Florida. Last month, transgender activists lashed out at Kentucky legislators who voted against their agenda by defacing an historic church. Vandals spray-painted the word trans-PWR on St. Joseph Catholic Church in Louisville, Kentucky on the 3rd of March, the day after the Kentucky House of Representatives passed a bill that would protect children from harmful gender transition procedures, the report states. Undeterred, state lawmakers enacted the child safety protections over Democratic Governor Andy Brashear's veto that month. Individuals who identify as transgender have focused their rage on Christian facilities as well. In addition to 28-year-old Aubrey Hale's attack on the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee, a 27-year-old man who identified as a woman set the 117-year-old Portland Korean Church building ablaze on the 3rd of January. The suspect... Uh, whose legal name is Cameron Storer, claimed to hear voices that threatened to 
mutilate Storer if Storer refused to burn the church down. The new Family Research Council report states. Well, Nashville police have yet to release Hale's manifesto, purportedly due to an ongoing investigation. But officers have said Hale's views of the transgender issue may have touched off her violent rampage at an elementary school. Storer apparently suffers from mental illness, which afflicts those who identify as LGBTQ at far higher rates than average, according to the Biden administration. Well, sometimes the same perpetrator strikes multiple times. Police say 40-year-old Peter Ciroli vandalized three Roman Catholic churches in New Jersey on the same morning, including burning a 10-foot-tall cross on the lawn of St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Woodbury on the 13th of January. The new Family Research Council update, it builds on an 84-page report released last December. In the original study, the FRC verified 420 acts of hostility against houses of worship between January of 2018 and September of last year. The new edition brings the full number of anti-Christian incidents in 2022 up to date. In the original report, the Family Research Council calculated 137 intentionally damaging incidents against churches had taken place through last September. The last three months of last year brought an additional 54 such acts, bringing the total number of assaults against churches to 191 in 2022. In all, researchers documented a total of 543 attacks on 517 separate churches between January of 2018 and March of this year. Of those separate churches, 517 attacked, 26 of the churches were victimized more than once, with three being targeted three times each, according to the data. Between 2018 and 2023, American churches have suffered 442 acts of vandalism, 71 cases of arson, 15 gun-related incidents, 14 bomb threats, 25 miscellaneous acts of aggression against church facilities. A total of 25 incidents fell into multiple categories. While the worst period of sustained assaults during the 39 months broke out last summer over the unprecedented and heretofore unsolved leak of the Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling last May. After the media reported the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade and return the issue of abortion to Democratic control, pro-abortion activists committed 86 attacks against Christian churches last May, in June and in July. Churches also sustained damage from the Black Lives Matter riots, which broke out in the summer of 2020 over the killing of George Floyd. BLM rioters committed 11 acts of church desecration, according to researchers. Despite the quickening pulse of anti-Christian crimes, some of which have been investigated as hate crimes, conservatives say the administration has been too lax in its response. In January, the Republican-controlled House passed uh, House Resolution 3, that noted that abortion extremists such as Jane's Revenge had defaced, vandalized, and caused destruction to over 100 pro-life facilities, groups, and churches in 2022, Yet the administration failed to take action to respond to the radical attacks on pro-life facilities, groups and churches or to protect the rights of those organizations. Well, the Senate that's taken no action on the bill thus far. American leaders and citizens alike should condemn acts of hostility against churches and affirm the right for all people to attend their houses of worship without feeling targeted or threatened. Del Turco, again, who is the author of the study from the Family Research Council. These are difficult days, but we are urged in Scripture to hold fast. He has overcome the world, so we are to fear not. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering. 
And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.